Welcome to the Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now let's begin. G'day everyone and welcome back to episode 34 of the Social Fishing Podcast. I tell you what, you are in for the best treat of your life for the next hour and 45, hour and 50 minutes. This is a cracker of an episode and I know we've done so many awesome ones but I am putting this up there in the top three, possibly the top episode yet if you love to chase Murray Cod and in specifically big Murray Cod in impoundments and I know we have touched on big cod a lot in dams but they are one of the most elusive fish and they're one thing that many of you guys want to know more about and you want to learn how to chase those big meter plus cod in the dams. This one here is a top episode. Now I was lucky enough to sit down with Clint Hansel. He's a legend fisho. He puts in that many hours on the water. It is ridiculous and he thinks outside the box and that's why this episode is different and special and one of the best yet because it's not just a general. We're not just talking general fishing. Clint really understands the fish and rather than talking about basic techniques, he talks about what he's witnessed with fish, fish behavior, fish activity and I'm a huge believer in understanding the behavior of the fish you are targeting and doing everything that you can to put yourself in the best possible spot to catching them. Now, some of the things that Clint talks about are incredible, things that we've never talked about on the podcast before and it's so, it makes so much sense as well. So, I love this chat and I had no direction for it at all. Um, I just said, Clint, let's just talk about fish, mate, and let's see where it goes and it went to the stars and back. It just was insane. I loved it. So, a little bit about what is in this episode because it is a huge episode and we have the show notes on the social fishing website. So, if you are watching this on the social, listening to this, sorry, on the social fishing website, scroll down, you will see the show notes. Every episode episode has show notes. So, if you want to listen to a specific part or a specific topic or you want to know all the little things that we cover in it, jump on the social fishing website, click on podcasts, find this episode, episode 34 and check out the show notes. So, a little bit of what we touch on is obviously Clint's background, how he grew up fishing but then we get into the insights and his insights into Murray Cod behavior, uh, things about their feeding times and periods of when they feed and it's not just about first and last slide but we talk about what switches fish on uh, and that they have this thing called, we call it the switch and when they just they just bite. Uh, techniques for casting a bank for cod in dams and the plan for a night session, what Clint's plan is and what goes through his head. Then we talk a little bit about, um, Clint's done a little bit of fly fishing for cod in dams. So, we talk about that but not just how to catch fish on fly, but what he has learnt by using fly, which you can apply to lure fishing, things you've never thought about before. Um, And one thing in particular is current, that dams have current. I'm not going to go into any more depth on that now, but listen to this episode because he talks about the current flows and how critical they are in dams. That's right, dams do have water movement and it's really, really critical. Well, it's, it's, if you understand it, you're just going to put yourself ahead of everyone else. 
Uh, Clint talks, I ask him about his lure selection for a night session, um, the retrieves and what he does in a retrieve specifically, including pauses and how critical a pause is. Then we get on to more discussions about fish behavior. Um, it just, there's so many different avenues to this conversation and it just went on so many different angles. So much good stuff and there wasn't one dull moment. Uh, Clint's favorite fish, uh, banks the fish, what type of bank he looks for. Um, and this isn't particular about key structure, it's about a specific style of bank, but then again, it's not just one. So we get his insight to that. Um, a little bit of, we touch on a little bit about techniques for the daytime. So if you do find yourself fishing a lake in the day or you prefer to fish in the daylight hours, it obviously is nowhere near as good, but we talk a little bit about techniques for that. And obviously, we talk about Clint's most memorable catch to date. And at the end there, we kind of get chatting a little bit more about hook set and hooking the fish. Now, I'm not going to blab on for too much longer, guys, because this is a jam-packed episode, so I'm going to jump right in, but enjoy it, and if you do enjoy it, please show us your support. Jump on social media, share, just take a screenshot of the app you listen to this on and post it on your Instagram story and tag us. Tell us what you think. Share it with your mates. If you think it's good, tell everyone you think it's good because the more downloads we get on these episodes, the better. Episode 34, it's a cracker, guys. Thank you so much for downloading it and listening. So now for the next hour and 45 minutes, sit down and enjoy this awesome chat with the man himself, Clint Hansel on Big Empowerment Murray Cod and what he does to get success. G'day guys and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Now I'm with a very special guest today. I have Clint Hansel on the end of the line. Now I had Clint on once before, not for a full episode. We just talked, uh, I got his insight to the fish kill at Blaring Dam, but I wanted to get him back on and talk about COD themselves. Clint, thanks heaps for joining me on the podcast. Oh, no problem, mate. It's like uh, most other people at the moment, uh, stuck at home and not fishing. Yeah, yeah. So this is like the next best thing, sort of, talking about fishing. So, mate, um, what I want to do is we've got a pretty exciting uh, podcast ahead. I have no idea where it's going to go, but I know that there's going to be so much good content because I know you know, really know how to catch these fish and you think outside the box, which I'm keen to get you to explore, but so that the listeners get to know you a little bit, get to know your background, can you tell us where fishing all started for you, where you're from and how you, you come across this addiction and this passion like the rest of us? Yeah, look, basically, mate, I grew up in the, the Wagga area, fishing places like Blowering Dam, uh, the Murrumbidgee River and Mulwala. That's pretty yep. much where I sort of started. That's quite a while ago now, back in the 90s. Uh, bought a boat in my early 20s and, yeah, got into it. It's a um, pretty steep learning curve. Fished a lot of those places, fished them pretty hard. Yeah, look, and look, fortunate enough in those times, catching a lot of fish. One thing I sort of didn't catch over that period of time was too many big fish, but yeah, after that, uh, moved moved up to Port Macquarie, spent a fair bit of time up there. Yeah, um, that gave me an opportunity to go and fish places as well, like um, you know the Granite Belt up in the New England Gorge country and and those sort of places. So spent a lot of time up there. Yeah, moved up to Cairns, did a bit of saltwater fishing up there, and um, yeah, 2018, I was fortunate enough to be able to move back to my hometown and and get nice. stuck with the big cod. Nice, that's good. And 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 you're glad you're home, like fishing wise. You, you this area, you ha- you like this area? Oh, look, fishing wise, yeah. Look, it's it's a great area, and I guess spending a bit of time away from the freshwater up at Cairns sort of really fired me back up for getting into those big fish. Um, a lot of change in that time, as you know. The 
the um, the focus on those big fish. Yeah, so it uh, it was something I kind of missed out on all the start of that. So when I moved back to Wagga, um, I was really keen to sort of focus my attention on those big fish. Yeah, right. So when you left, what was the, the fishing like around this area when you left? Was there the whole – like how long ago did you leave Wagga? Uh, that was around 2006. Yeah. So it was kind of the transition from like your set line sort of – your older style lures to this whole new world that we're in today is there, there's obviously a huge difference between the fishing styles from when you left to when you got back. Oh look, absolutely. Look, I, I kind of um, just the environment I grew up in. Set lining was probably a a thing that everyone did back then. But then once I got into that, um, you know, bought the boat and got any of the lure fishing, just a totally different ball game. So, I mean, for me back then, a big lure was was seventy five mil hard. <laughs> Yeah. Number one stump jumpers were just a massive lure. And, um, I mean, one thing about fishing that sort of style, though, you tend to catch a lot more fish. But what you don't tend to catch many of is that next class of those, you know, those really big metre-plus fish. Yeah. I think and in the whole time back then, um, I mean, that was probably 15 years of solid fishing, and I think I caught uh, one metre-plus fish. On yeah. A lure, and the other one was on a scrub worm. So, right. you know, that's a, and in that time too, I mean, that's a lot of fish caught, you know, probably oh, look, there'd be thousands of fish caught in that time. But yeah, what, what I was missing out on was those bigger fish. And I think that was purely because I wasn't actually targeting them. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you what was your – how many big fish did you catch back then because I want to compare that to now. Obviously, if you got back in 2018, it's a big difference. Do you think it's because – uh, just the way you targeted them? Like if you had the fish for them, the way you fish for them now, you you would have caught big fish back then? Oh, look, without a doubt. You certainly would have caught big fish back then. Um, I think one thing now, like the, particularly the impoundments, the numbers of big fish I think are certainly greater now than what they were back then. Right, okay, yep. Numbers of fish in the river in that time frame, you could see, you could see them start to increase. Um, certainly yeah. places around the country, like some of those New England gorge areas. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a, a pretty special place up there, my first trip ever up there, and, you know, that place was just such an eye-opener. Um, big numbers of, of fish, mostly small fish, but big numbers of fish in quite clear water, and you could often watch those fish. You know, That's crazy. Around, yeah, sight fishing, um, sight fishing with surface lures, middle of the day, you know, that sort of stuff, and, I mean, the numbers of fish up there were crazy. You know, some days two of you could easily catch in excess of 70 cod for a session. And, no way. Yeah, back down here, I mean, that was that kind of fishing is just unheard of. But, um, I mean, what that sort of fishing does, though, is it, it lets you see things and experience things in a short period of time that, you, you know, you literally spend a whole season trying to see one or two fish hit your lure in front of you and you get to see how those fish behave. Which is vital, hey? Yeah, oh, mate, it makes a massive difference. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, fish behaviour is one of those things that used to, used to be one of those things that used to fascinate me. The, I mean, fishing, blaring the Murray and Mulwala, three completely different fisheries. Mm. So fish behave vastly different in those areas. And, you know, the gorge country up there, um, they behave totally different to what I'd seen fish behave like down here at, um, I think, though, regardless of where you fish, I mean, a lot of that stuff comes back to one thing, and that's their food source. I mean, that's probably the, the fundamental driver of of 
how fish behave in a certain empowerment or a waterway. Yeah, so so you say that the, the way that we should think and approach fish should all come back to how they feed. I, I think that's the starting point. Yeah. If you can understand the, the fish behaviour in a particular waterway that you fish and know that if you go to a different area, they're going to behave a bit differently based on their food sources, then, I mean, that's a big part of the equation under your belt straight up. Yeah, okay. So so you know how you said you went up north, you're in the clear water, you're watching them feed. Could you take that knowledge and apply it down here? Could you take how they behaved up there and applied it down here and did it work down here? Yeah. Because they're the same fish? Absolutely. I mean, basically, regardless of where you fish for the cod, their behaviours are very similar. Um, but the opportunity up there to actually witness what they were doing, how they were behaving, you'd often watch more than one fish you know, cruise out from behind a boulder. Sometimes they'd cruise up. Other times they'd hit it with such force, they'd miss. But you can quite often convert that fish back and um, whether it's the next cast or the same cast, you know, you could quite often turn that fish from a looker into a taker. And I think whether you can see them or not, if you know that's what they're doing, you can then bring that back to an area where you can't see what they're doing and quite often you can, you know, you can convert a fish that you would have otherwise missed. Right. So I know every situation would have been different, but what it was what was a common thing you found with the way that they took a lure? Like did they follow from behind and hit from behind or did they come like cuz I heard of a lot of people saying up there that a lot of the cod had come in behind but then overtake the lure and come in and hit it sideways or try to hit it head first and then continually circle back around and hit it head first. What was your experience? Yeah, look, I think in those sort of um, clear, skinny water um, areas, especially when there's quite good numbers of fish, those fish are quite opportunistic. Right. So having your, your lure land on the one spot where you know there's going to be a fish, I mean, that's probably the first the first part. Um, you know, and a lot of that water up there is small pocket water. So yeah. you can see where the fish are potentially going to hide and you can put the lure, you know, where you need to. And bringing that back down to these sort of places back down south is is no different. You know, you need to be putting your lure where you think is the best chance for you to catch that fish. And quite often, though, that, you know, if they're not going to hit you straight up like that and they're in a, uh, I guess, a bit of a, uh, a mood where they're not as fired up, you know, quite often they will come in and, and hit from the side. They'll hit from below or in front. But um, I think when you watch fish like that, you start to see that, quite often when they're following, if that lure just keeps doing what it's doing, quite often mm. that won't be the trigger to get them to, to strike. You need to be doing something different, whether that's a, a quick pause, a quick speed up and then a stop. Um, yep. You need to be doing something different because I guess in the in the real world, that's how wounded bait fish kind of tend to react. They don't just swim along naturally and, uh, you know, it's that trigger uh, of that fish doing something different that can quite often get that strike. Yeah, I agree with you about the wounded, um, that wounded part of of a lure, because a, a lot of lures are made just to do, like they just look like a fully alive, happy, you know, bait fish. Mm. So imparting those injured sort of wounded parts to the lure can hugely increase your hookup rate, and that's yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So, man, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about. 
um, fish behavior, and we've already touched on that a bit. Is there anything else you want to go in depth on about how cod behave in particular? Well, I think for me, when I first moved back here, I <clears throat> one thing I really wanted to do was just focus on big fish. Caught plenty of small fish, but those big fish is sort of what really wanted, you know, what I really wanted to chase. Hmm. And I spent the best part of two seasons spending a, a ridiculous amount of time on the water. Yeah, some, I'll back that. Ridiculous, all right. <laughs> some uh, obsessed. I, I kind of like to look at it as being pretty focused on what I want dedicated, to do. Dedicated, yeah. Yeah, dedicated is a good word. But when you spend that amount of time on the water, you start to see things um, that you might not ordinarily see. One of the things, I guess, is you know, that that bit of a misconception. And, and look, I certainly had that misconception from predominantly being a, a troller back in the day, mm. where you'd be trolling in in six to eight, ten metres of water, uh, constantly trying to tap your lures on the bottom. Yeah. Um, but coming back and, and getting into the casting for the bigger fish at night, um, I sort of found that first season or so that I wasn't necessarily getting fish way down deep. And quite often those fish in those impoundments, are, um, you know, they're not just – uh, bottom dwellers sitting there sulking. They're actually quite mobile um, and they'll move a long way to catch um, their food. So a lot of those big fish, um, they're not they're not just sitting on the bottom. They're up roaming around. Whether they're actively looking for food or not, um, they spend a far far greater time than you'd think just, just patrolling around their areas. So that was probably the first thing I really noticed up there. And How did you notice that? Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but how did you actually notice that? Yeah. Was it just catching the midwater or sounder or what made you realise that? Uh, quite often actually actually spotting them during the day. Yeah. It's, seeing them. Seeing them during the day, yeah. It's yeah. Um, fishing up there for me mostly that season was was pretty much a, a nighttime thing. So, you know, a session that involved, you know, hopefully getting on the water an hour or so before dark and maybe fishing through to midnight. Um, up early in the morning, maybe an hour before dark, a couple of hours into the session. And then usually I spend a fair bit of time during the day just, you know, catching up, ready for the next session. Um, but I sort of thought that was a bit of non-productive time. So went for a walk one day on the bank and um, middle of the day just having a look around and there was two of us having a, having a look there. And I think that day we spotted oh, seven or eight cod on a pretty steep bank that were doing things that I'd, I, was, I was pretty taken back by what they were doing. You know, fish out in 8, 10, 15 metres of water, um, almost breaking the surface and just cruising around. Really? So that, that, that for me, was just a, a massive eye-opener. Um, yeah. We did try and catch those fish, but in that clear water, middle of the day like that, they're, they're certainly very difficult to catch, but the eye-opener was the fact that they're actually out cruising like that all the time. Yeah, because if they're doing that in the day, they're going to do that in the dark. They're, they're going to be doing More that. So. And, you know, you often hear things like, oh, the, the fish will push up into the shallows during the night to feed. Um, I sort of found that those fish tend to be in those spots all the time. They'll just move from, um, you know, deep water up up higher in the water column, cruise right into the shallows. Um, yeah, it's it's quite amazing once you actually get out and start to have a look around in a, in a clear impoundment and just see what those fish are doing. The other thing that really surprised me about those fish was that they were almost never structure-orientated. 
So we certainly spotted fish that would cruise up to a, a lay down on the bank, but at the most they probably only spent two or three minutes there and yeah. then cruised off and you'd see that same fish, you know, come back in, you know, quite a distance down the bank. So they it sort of just got me thinking about, like you said, if they're doing that during the middle of the day, um, they're definitely going to be doing that at night time and not just hugging the bottom. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so that's the first. So you experienced that. So then based on that, then what, what did you do to your fishing? Look, I think one, one thing with the cod fishing and empowerments, it's, um, it's one of those things where, as you know, it's pretty hard to – to put those pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, in a, in a six or eight hour session, you might only get a chance at one, maybe two bites, if at any. Mm, yeah, I agree. And then the next time you go up, might be a week later, conditions are, you know, it's like a forever moving goalpost. Those conditions change as the season rolls on. And what yep. you're catching fish on one week may not be what they want the next week. And that could be that could be from one night to the next. You know, one night they might want a, a noisy chatterbait the next night they'll only eat a silent plastic or a swim bait, yeah, those sort of things. So, look, for me it was about what what can I do, I guess, to maximise my chances of, of catching a fish. What I found with that in the first instance is, I guess, starting to put together a system of fishing that I thought gave me the, the best chance of maximising um, my chances of getting a bite for the night. Yep. So I think some nights if you consistently throw the one lure or fish the one depth or the one style of bank, I think you're gonna you're gonna miss out on some opportunities. So what I started doing was fishing one, two, three outfits, you know, started to increase that different style of lure. Even if I was fishing the same style of lure, I would start to one vary my retrieve and wear yep. it at different depths. So very systematic approach to to going about it. So you know, take a you know, a good sized chatterbait for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Sit out from the bank, long cast to the bank, let it sink to the bottom, hop it up, three or four winds, let it sink back to the bottom and work it back out. Next cast, instead of letting it sink to the bottom um, straight up, I just straight away start winding and work that sort of middle third of the water column rather than that bottom third. Yep. And tended to find over time you'd probably get a few more bites fishing lower, but quite often those fish had hit on the paws and when you were sinking that lure down, they seemed to be more aggression bites rather than a, a, a you know, a solid attack and a, like, like they're eating food. Yeah. Yeah, so the hookup rate was way less on those fish down low, but you sort of found that if you were to get a bite in that middle third of the water column, they were hungry feeding fish that prepared to move and attack that lure with force. That's crazy. Ten yeah. hookup rates quite, you know, quite, um, quite. Yeah, yeah. And look, that early time, I did spend a lot of time um, fishing surface lures up there. That was still kind of the big thing. Yeah. Um, probably the first couple of months I was fishing up there, I I was pretty much focused on surface lures and surprisingly, how deep some of those fish were hitting. I think my best fish for the season up there came on a cast that I drifted into the bank and I'd actually fired the cast straight out from the bank and two or three winds and I I was on. And that was 10 to 12 metres of water. So there's no way that fish had time to to move from the bottom 
up there. He was already cruising around and and looking for food. So I think quite often if you if you're consistently fishing that bottom part of the water, um, you know those hungry fish that'll move a fair way. You're going to miss out on that opportunity to catch those type of fish for that night. I just want to take a quick break from the chat with Clint to talk to you about the social fishing membership. It has just gone live and it's the brand new freshwater fishing platform that we have created to help you guys successfully catch more fish. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this membership, but the key thing that I want to talk to you about is the SF maps. We get a lot of questions from you guys regarding where the fish bite, where do I go, where do I put a boat in, and what do I do? So what we want to do is help you guys because there's a lot of different lakes out there, there's a lot of different waterways, and they're all different. So what we've done is we've visited these major lakes and we've documented the access points, the camping spots, where's the best spot to camp, the best spot to bait fish off the bank, boat ramps, where you can access the lake and if there's any issues to accessing the lake. We've then also traveled around the lake and found all the key fishing spots, taken photos of them and mapped them on the map. So it gives you guys a bit of a starting point. When you're visiting a lake uh, and you're not sure where to go, it will give you a point to start and it will also give you fishing tips, content, videos, articles. So it gives you guys a base to start off when you visit that spot. Plus inside the membership, we have reports every two weeks written by anglers that are out there fishing the waterway at the time. So if it's not fishing any good, you can ask them a question, they will let you know and it'll also be in their reports. There's so much more inside the membership and you can learn more at socialfishing.com.au but for now, that's just the SF Maps component of the membership and make sure if you are keen to support it and see more, check it out at socialfishing.com.au. Now back to the chat with Clint. Those topwater fish, are you fishing? So you're you're searching for those fish that are sitting midwater or anywhere. And when you're fishing with the surface, were you? Did you have to be around heavy structure or in areas with dense cover, or could you be in those open areas? Do they swim out into the open areas on open banks, or do you find that they've got to have some kind of cover to go back to within a hundred or two hundred meters, or that's not at the case at all? No, I don't. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and look, I've had quite a few theories on what those fish do in those dams. Do they do they have an area of you know four or five hundred meters that they stay there, or do they constantly roam around the dam? And I tend to think they've got. Although at times they might venture a fair distance, I think generally they stick pretty close to a, a similar type of area. Yep, and. Look, one of the reasons I think that a good mate of mine caught a, a really distinctive fish uh, at the end of 2018, got a lot of battle scars on his head, big, big white obvious marks. And Yes. Yeah. Earlier, earlier this year, and you'll probably know, I think you've seen this same fish. Yeah, has, yeah there's a big <laughs> white mark behind its sort of eye on the top of its head, like a real white patch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I've it's, seen that fish too. I haven't caught it, but I've seen him. Yep. So you know the area that it's in, and, and my mate actually caught that fish probably a couple of hundred metres um, from that little bay. And yep. I've seen that fish probably oh, five or six times in springtime this year in that same bay. Yeah. I think the the structure orientation, uh, certainly a thing when they're nesting in that breeding season, but yep. apart from that, I, yeah, look, in, in a place like Blowering, that's you've got the benefit of such a, uh, a clear dam. Yeah. 
if you if you get out in your boat or walk the bank, doesn't doesn't really matter. But when conditions are perfect, if you if you go and walk that bank or, or poke along the edge, without a doubt, you will see fish. I mean, yeah. we've seen. I kid you not. My best my best hour or so of spotting cod this year was in excess of twenty five cod, and that's Jeez. probably in about a two hundred meter stretch of bank. Wow, and that's in spring when they're when they're sort of real active, or that was. When was that? That was in spring, but some yeah. of those other times of spotting fish, it's literally been if you've got enough water clarity, yeah, you will see those fish. And yeah. more often than not, they're just cruising around. They're not at any set particular depth. No. Doesn't matter the time of the day. I mean, when those fish get in impoundments, get to 70-plus centimetres, they They don't care about anything else, eh? No. Nah. And it's not like the river where you've got, a fish that needs to get out of the current to um, you know, save energy in that, yeah. Things. I mean, they're predominantly just they're cruising around, they're looking for food. They don't bite very often, so they spend a lot of time just sort of yeah poking around and cruising, basically. But yeah. that answer your question with those surface fish, no, it's um, it's not necessarily structure. Um, I sort of had a pretty methodical approach of, of picking a particular bank and or stretch and just systematically working along the edge, long casting in front with surface lures. Um, most of the time trying to make sure I was going at a pace where my lure had a chance to go through the same piece of water a couple of times as I was moving forward. Um, not necessarily casting to the bank. Quite often I'd be in, you know, three or four metres from the bank and I'd cast an extra you know, five or ten metres out from the bank. And, yeah. yeah, there was no real consistency to where those fish hit. It could be right up against the bank or it could be adding 10 or 15 metres of water on the surface. Yeah, that's crazy, eh? And, and I'm going to back what you said there about the um, about the fish moving. Mm-hmm. I've done the same thing and looked for them before, especially in spring. I've been chasing goldens in the shallows on fly um, and you'll see that many big cod, but I've not – yeah, I don't think I've seen one sitting still on a piece of structure, they're all cruising around. And that's why you spot them because they're, they're on the move. Yeah, um, you'll be sitting there waiting one minute and everything's quiet and all of a sudden you'll just see this, you know, that um, they kind of get that whitish-grey look as they materialise out of the depths and, you know, quite often they'll, they'll just come up and it'll be literally within a foot of the surface. Um, yeah. Look, the other thing with the movement, we watched one fish which – made me have a bit of a rethink and I think it's got to do with A, getting to know your area, but they'll definitely focus on on certain areas or banks at certain times of the water height or or times of the night when they go to feed where the, the best feeding opportunities are and I think they'll move a fair way to feed um, but generally will hang around in, in a general area. We, um, we watched one fish one day. He, we hadn't seen too many, and all of a sudden this fish, it was around about probably 90-odd centimetres, um, just cruised up. He's probably two to three metres out from the bank in, in about a metre and a half of water. And we followed that fish on the bank for probably the best part of five or 600 metres over about 15 minutes. Wow. And he didn't he didn't deviate. He just stayed at that depth and just slowly cruised at a slow walking pace. And he went... Out, out the bay we're in, along the, um, the front of the bank, and we got to a point where it was a bit too steep to walk and, and we ended up losing sight of it. But, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting behaviour when you see fish that do those sort of random things that 
you know, you're not really expecting. And that was, again, that was probably oh, late winter and, um, you know, a bright sunny day. Yet he just came straight out of the depth, straight in front of us, turned and then just followed that bank for, yeah, best part of a half a K. Yeah, and, and I bet they themselves aren't scared of anything. So they're happy to do whatever. But I know you've got, you've got, and I have no idea what the hell they're doing. But what do you think he's doing? Do you reckon he's looking for feeding grounds for the dark? Do you reckon he's just just having a bit of fun? Do you reckon it's like us going for a walk against his exercise? What, like, do you have any idea what he was doing? I, I have no idea, to be honest. Yeah. I think your bit is as good as mine. You know, it's, it's, I mean, they pretty much know their patch intimately. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's quite. And look, a lot of those times, it's it's not always just a single fish either. You know, it's quite often multiple fish together. And mm. um, it's another thing that I'm sort of almost convinced of in those dams that the fish don't. They're not solo hunters. You know, it might be a different story in a river where they might have a home snag for argument's sake in a river and that's generally tucked up away somewhere which can be quite often hard to get a lure to but mm-hmm. when they want to see they'll move out into that faster water um they'll station themselves in a in the best possible spot in the river that they can wait for food to come to them a dam's a bit different they've got to go out and actively search for it and for a big fish to hunt food in open water um, to me, it sort of makes sense that the best chance they're going to have is if they're hunting when there's more than one of them and yep. they're that confusion. I guess a little bit like you think about the, you know, you see that footage of Marlin um, attacking a bait ball. Mm-hmm. You know, for more than one and one will come in and it'll it'll scare the fish and bang, that gives another fish an opportunity. And that's kind of what I think they sort of tend to do up there. And I think that's also why sometimes you'll get that bite and quite often the best time to get that next bite will be within 10 or 15 minutes of getting that first bite and getting it uh, almost the same area. Yeah, so I, it's one of those one percenters where if you miss a bite, you certainly don't want to be wasting time and changing lures and, and moving on out of that area. It's it's an area to focus on. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I've always I've always known that 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 and of with myself and Talis and we've all experienced it that if you get a hit it's like righto, they can be on for fifteen minutes and you can get three hits in fifteen minutes and then the rest of the night is dead. Like it's insane. But I just thought maybe all the fish become active, but what you've said there, it's probably because you've got four or five fish in the one area feeding on some kind of bait that they've rounded up because they're more pelagic than we think and, and we can only guess to a point because we don't have the water clarity that the ocean has and, you know, the people that work underwater and, you know, there's documentaries and everything. We can't see that for cod, but based on all these clues, I reckon you're pretty well close to the money that they would be very similar to pelagic fish. They are, these big cod in the dams, they are pelagic, aren't they? Mm. Look, you've only got to see some of the, um, you know, some of the latest, um, you know, panoptic type live scope sounders and, you know, we've probably all seen footage now of those big fish just roaming around those treetops in 10, 15, 20 metres of water, you yeah. know. Um, and in these dams where there's not as much structure, I think they do tend to spend a lot of time just sort of roaming around and then, um, you know, they're focusing on an area. When, when that switch comes on, and I think sometimes too, I mean, when that switch happens, it's not as if every fish in the dam switches on. Uh, it yeah. might seem like that sometimes, but 
I mean, I've been up there some nights and I've just drawn a complete blank and someone else that I know has been fishing a different part of the dam and they said, mate, wow, the bite, we got five bites in like Yes, and I've like, experienced that too. I've got nothing. <laughs> and sometimes, look, it's great, it works the other way. And then other nights you'll find, yeah, you might know half a dozen people up there and everyone just said, at 8 to 8.30, wow, that was just game on. And everyone mm. was but um, I think with those bigger fish, particularly in winter, I mean, they're just lurking around, conserving energy. If a fish has a has a feed, he doesn't necessarily need to feed for several days, if not a week or more. So it, I think it depends a lot on when they've last fed and and what what those triggers are that that um, get them really get them going again. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, so you think there's a trigger point and there's a thing that you, as you was talking, you were calling it the switch, like there's something that switches them on. You, I'm guessing you, you agree there is something that does trigger fish into bite patterns. Uh, is there anything you can lay your finger on that does do it or that's just it's just the fish in that area in the lake just happen to feed? Do you, do you, do you, yeah, I don't know where to go anymore with that question, but do you reckon there's something? or Obviously, you agree there is something. Yeah, look, bite times are a funny thing. There's there's definitely triggers there that trigger those bite times, and you, you hear a lot of people sort of talk in certain impoundments. Um, Copeton was a good one, I guess, as an example. Um, a couple of years ago, I'm working in a tackle shop. Uh, I used to talk to a lot of guys that would go to Copeton, and they quite often talked about there was only two bite times for the day, and it was half an hour or so before dark, and then it was half an hour or so after the sun had come up in the morning. And, and yep. that was it. And blaring and other impairments, they can be pretty much the same, but I don't think it's that set in in stone that that's when those bite times are, are going to happen. Um, I think there's times where the window of opportunity for a bite increases and look, that... Um, Last hour of da- uh, last hour of daylight and that that breaking daylight in the morning is obviously a, a peak time no matter where you are. Yeah, gives you a better chance of getting a fish. But um, I think there's other times during the night, and to me it's that inconsistent that the better approach, rather than try and predict that bite time, my general approach, you know, of, a, of an evening session is I'll try and get on the water at least an hour before dark if I can, and in those winter months, I'll try and fish through to midnight, and that'll give me a, a six- to eight-hour fishing period that gives me potentially a, a number of opportunities at a bite time, and every night is so different that I'm all fished up there several times where you might be three, four, five nights in a row, and one night you'll get you'll get several bites just on dark, nothing for the rest of the night, the next night, you might get a bite an hour after dark, another hour after that, another hour after that, and it's just a reasonably consistent bite through the whole night. Yep. And then you'll go two days and won't get a single bite. <laughs> Doesn't it annoy you? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it's multiple trips with no bites. But um, yeah. it's it's that inconsistent to pick actual bite times that I think the approach of actually just fishing it hard while you're in the water gives you a better chance in the in the overall long run. Um, there are definitely times, though, where you can 
increase your chances of getting a bite. And I think that's got to do with A, the way you fish, and B, knowing um, knowing certain areas and, and what happens. For me, that change of light period is um, is something that is a definite trigger, and it's not necessarily just when the sun goes down or when the sun goes up. Um, the moon plays a big part in that at night time as well. Um, you quite often forget that, you know, a, a full moon rising or, or once it sort of gets past that full moon and starts to um, come up later in the night, that that can be like a very much like a, a change of light period and that can trip night time as well. You know, so they're the sort of times I will go, right, rather than move from spot A to spot B, the moon's going to be coming up in, in half an hour. I'll be fishing this particular bank and I want to have my lures in the water um, right at the point just before that moon comes up. Yeah, so there is, and I agree, there is a bite. There is a bite period. There's something that triggers them. What it is, we're never going to be able to put a finger on it because every part of the dam, every dam, every night, every weather element is just totally different, that there's that many different matches that you're never going to be able to pick it. But yeah. Um, that other thing I want to talk to you about is... You know how you said that the fish move, they cruise around, you saw them do it during the day, I've seen them do it during the day as well, Um, experienced it quite a bit up there and and I'm talking in like six metres of water, they've almost got their back out of the water in open water, which is crazy. They obviously do it in the dark, Um, I've actually spotted, there was once at Burrenjuk, we spotted, we were were cruising and we normally were always in pitch black so we've got no idea what's going on but we had to turn the torch on just to see where this bank was that we were going to camp on and we were casting and we turned the light on and no joke, we spotlighted this rat about, oh, I don't know, four or five meters from the boat and out of the back light of the torch, there was these eyes and this cod was on the surface following this rat about a meter behind it and like he was a good 90 centimeter cod. So I should have left the torch on, but we dead set, we turned the torch off, had a cast and then nothing happened, turned it back on. The the rat kept coming past the boat. The cod was gone. <laughs> but it was crazy. But, yeah, so what I want to get at is the fact that they move around. When you fish now, do you continually cover water or do you fish slow? Because there's two different approaches, and I use these approaches depending on the bank I'm fishing. I'll either fish quicker, but I usually, when I know there's fish in the area, I'll spend a whole night cruising one bank which might be oh, let's say 800 meters um, mm-hmm. a, a k and it might take me all night to fish it so i'm saying from you know sun just before sunset all the way to when we're pretty much done 11 12 o'clock and i'll spend my time there because i know the fish are there mm-hmm. um, unless i get halfway through the night and the sounder is showing no bait whatsoever because I rely a lot on the carp showing up on the bank underneath or some kind of activity, just something going on. Um, And I have spent a whole night the night after. So we fished one night and there was bait everywhere. We got a really big cod and we come back there the next night and stupidly we fished it all night. There was not a single bit of bait on the bank Um, and we're fishing total flat banks. But do you, I myself, I like to fish really slowly in an area. And you know how you were saying the cod cruise around a lot. Would it be stupid to sit yourself in one spot that's a key looking spot and fish it all night? Or how do you, I know that's probably a bit extreme, but how do you approach it when you know that the fish move around so much? Because you could cast to the same point all night and you could catch a fish 
you know, 400 casts in, but, you know, yeah. Yeah. So how do you approach it? I've got a very similar approach. Um, I've got a number of different ways that that I fish and and it might depend on how much I've been fishing in the last few weeks. So at the moment, if I was to go and have a session at the dam, which I guess when we finally get out of this uh, lockdown scenario, yeah. It'll be a completely different ball game. No one will have been up there for a while, and it'll be a, a new approach. So, for me to approach it like that, I'm keen to cover water. That's that's my um, way of approaching it. I'll generally sit out, depending on the the steepness of the bank. But I really like banks I can sit out in eight to ten meters of water, and a long cast will put me almost to the bank. Right. I'll systematically work along that bank. I tend to use if i want to cover water i tend to go to a lure like a chatterbait that i can actually fish quite quickly and i will long cast and i, I pretty much cast directly at the bank and by the time i move along a little bit obviously the, the lure is sort of coming in behind um and i'll just i'll work a bank over like that one the theory is i want to cover as much ground as i can give my lure as much opportunity to be presented in front of a fish that actually wants to eat the lure mm-hmm and it's all about just trying to get a bite. And I will take a lot of notice, though, of the sounder. If I go to a bank and I'm working along a bank and there's just nothing showing, I'll just pull the pin and go to a different, completely different bank. How long do you give it? Not not that you can put a finger on it, but is there a sort of a how long you would fish it for before you move? Oh, look, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour if I'm right. not. Okay, if I'm yep. Not and that, it might only be that long if it's a bank that I'm – I'm not that familiar with. So if I yep. want to go and target a new area, and look, give an example of that, I guess, is not last year, the year before, there was a whole section of bank. I'd never fished it. And I think over about five or six sessions, I worked over about a five or six kilometres of bank twice. Yep. So I fished it, literally didn't stop, started at one end. Next time I went up there, I started where I finished and just kept working up. And then I did it in reverse all the way back. And there was whole big sections where on both up and backs so I got no bites. But surprisingly enough, over a period of time, um, most of the bites along those sections were all within 100 metres of where I got another bite. So right. started focusing on those sort of areas. And, and over a period of time, you kind of build up areas where you've got a lot of confidence in. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll just go and hit that point or that bank and I'll, I'll work along that point for 50 to 100 metres and I'll turn around and I'll work it back again and then I'll turn around and I'll go over it again. But I don't really like to spend too much time in the night being unproductive driving around the dam from, from spot to spot. Um, for me, the fishing in impoundments is pretty much a numbers game and – Unless you've got a hook in the water, you won't catch a fish. Yeah. So it, it's about working over a bank and being as productive as you can rather than sort of scooting around the dam wondering where you're going to fish to next. So I'll generally approach a night with maybe three banks in mind. Very um, in close proximity to each other? Yeah, not too far away, maybe within five minutes at the most um, away from each other. And if I go to one bank and I'm pretty happy with how it looks, I'm pretty happy just to work that bank over all night. But I do like a little bit of variety. Um, so those three banks, one might be a really steep bank, one might be a shallow flats, the other might be, you know, in between. 
Um, I'll yeah. go and the areas over and I'll I'll see what's what's happening. But that's I guess the approach if if I really want to cover water and <clears throat> I want to um, you know I haven't been up there much and I'm not as familiar with you know, or as confident um, where the fish are going to be. If I've been up there though several times or I'm really confident that wow this spot looks great. Um, I'm quite happy now to work a 100-metre section of bank all night. Um, and it's yeah. funny, funny what you say about, you know, is it better to sit on a point and fish? Um, just touching briefly on on taking up the fly last year, the fly changes your mind about that approach because you can't systematically work a bank over at any speed. So my approach with the fly, and I, I didn't sort of spend any time fishing the fly for a whole night I just pick it up and go and fish for an hour, maybe an hour and a half with the fly and, and only when conditions are perfect because with the fly I'm um, far from an expert and I'm not even safe in the boat with myself, let alone anyone else in there. <laughs> it's um, What I had to do with that was I tended to focus on a particular area and over the course of an hour, hour and a half, I probably only covered 50 metres of water. Yep. So I'd actually hit spot lock and, and fire out 10 or 15 casts, move five or 10 metres, you know, another 10 or 15 casts. And I, I caught just as many fish doing that. And I think it's that same theory. Well, if you think you're in a likely area, if the fish aren't biting, they're going to bite at some point or they're going to be going past that point when they're, when they're triggering it. So, you know, I guess points and, and areas of concentrated bait are obviously likely areas where that's a, you know, a real option and you're real happy to just and like you said there's 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 credit to sitting in that one spot and working it not that one spot but within a 30 to 50 meter bank and working it for a couple of hours there's nothing like that does bring success absolutely yeah there's spots there where you'll tend to fall and once you start um, putting a, a bit of time and effort in the first bank that i will fish the next trip will be the bank where I caught fish the trip before. Right, okay. So out of those sort of three or four bins where you might fish a night, I tend to, the next time I'll probably drop one of those banks off if it hasn't been productive. And some point in the night, I'll just go and fish a completely different bank. But I tend to, if there's certain times of the night where I've caught fish or I think that's going to be a better chance of a bite, I'll certainly go to the areas where I'm confident, mm -hmm. but I'll just work those other areas over for the night and I'll drop one area off and I'll pick a new area up the next night and I'll keep rotating. But if I'm catching fish in an area, I won't stop fishing that area until it stops producing. It's, yeah, um, okay. And look, that can change as, as the months roll on or, the, or more importantly, it's got a lot to do with the water height. Um, of the dam as the height's dropping or falling. Some banks will become more productive at a certain height, but as that drops off, they tend to become less productive and, and other points and opportunities sort of come into play. So I think just having a, a flexible approach to your night. I mean, I've been up there nights where I've, I've thought about a plan driving up there and when I got up there, the wind's different than what I thought it was going to be or I've just totally changed my approach. But quite often when you do that, you kind of, and the first bank doesn't produce, it's sort of, Jesus, where am I going to go to now? So I think it's pretty good to have a rough plan of what you want to do before you get there. Um, so you can just zoom straight there, just get your lures in the water and 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 focus that time on on being productive. Yeah, yeah. So what, what I want to ask you about is that with that fly stuff, um, I'm, we're not going to go right in depth on it. I want to do it. I'd like to talk to you again about it. But 
you're only fishing shallow with the fly, aren't you? Like you're obviously not fishing that deep. You're only got like big streamers and, and you find the big cod, find them no worries at all in the dark. Um, yeah, so there's two questions there. Yeah, so that that that's a good question, particularly about the fish finding the fly. And to, to answer your first question, um, the answer is kind of no. I actually fish the fly exactly the same as I would fish chatterbaits in 8, 10, 12 metres of water. I would fish it no differently. So I've got a, a, a slightly weighted fly, quite yep. a large fly. It's about 250 mil long. And I, th- I fish it on an intermediate line. So I'm actually fishing that exactly the same as I would with a, any other lure. So I'm a couple of strips, four, five, six, seven, eight second pause, and then two or three more strips. And I'm just fishing it down the contours, obviously not right on the bottom, but probably somewhere in that middle third of the water column. And when I first started getting into the fly, one of the questions I had was, how the hell are a fish going to find this in the pitch dark? Um, and to start off with, I actually wasn't fishing in the dark because I couldn't cast that well during the day, let alone at night. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, Cam from River Escapes, who helped me out with a lot of info and getting set up for the fly, I messaged him one day and said, look, I think I'm, I'm keen enough to and, and getting there enough that I think I can throw the fly at night. You know, what's the chances of the, of the fish finding the fly at night? And he said, Mate, have no doubt those fish will find the fly at night. And I think within the first hour of fishing after dark, I, I got a fish of, of the, a low 70s, you know, in the dark. So they've got no dramas in, in finding that fly at night. That's how attuned they are to to picking up. Um, movement or something going through the water. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, when you think about it, a, a bait fish in the water doesn't doesn't have a rattle or a, you know, no. they're just picking up those subtle, subtle lateral line um, pulses that they can pick up on. So, um, yeah, the fly at night is yeah, it's not a it's not an issue for them to find it. That's crazy. And can you tell me a little bit about the um, the whole current situation that you've come across in lakes? And you learnt that a lot based on the fly. You've told me before. Can that was really cool listening to that? Can you explain that whole thing that dams do have water movement? Yeah, it. it it really did surprise me. I kind of knew there was currents um, in the dams and, and quite often it's it's only very subtle, but you sort of notice some nights, particularly when it was a dead still night, you'd fish a bank a certain way and your electric motor, you could almost hardly hear it ticking along, but then you'd turn around and come back and it seemed like you had to uh, notch the electric up a notch or two to, to move along at the same pace. Um but when I picked up the fly and I was literally on spot lock, I'd find that boat would want to swing around a certain way and yep. nothing the fly line out. And you were looking and going, hey, am I moving or what's going on here? Because when it's at its strongest, I was finding that fly line was moving three to four metres of drift through the water. And that's from a stationary position. So um, that kind of got me thinking with the fly that if I can't cover too much water, where am I going to focus my attention on? Quite often it was just those points or those areas where I thought would, if there was current, just they'd be pushing along those points. And the obvious uh, place for those fish to sit in ambush um, would be on the back side of those points as current was pushing past. And um, coincidentally, that was pretty much where I caught every one of my cod on fly last year at those sort of points. 
So they were sitting on the the downs if there was like that slight current. They're on the downstream side waiting for food to run around the point. Yeah, that's exactly where they were. Um, the best one that I got on fly, he was literally tucked in this little rock, um, little tiny rocky outcrop. And there, you could, once it become daylight, you clearly see like a little two to three meter sort of back eddy where there was almost no current movement. Yeah, and I'd put the fly in there probably about maybe two or three metres from the bank and it wasn't a great cast. I had a bit of um, bit of bend in the fly line and I literally did two or three strips just to straighten that fly line out and then I paused for a couple of seconds, strip and, um, yeah, loaded into that fish. And that's exactly where I was sitting, right on the back side of those points. And at the same point, it's been a pretty kind point to me. I got my PB fish off that. I was with a couple of other young blokes where we got a metre nine off that point. I uh, lost another big fish off that that one point. But the yeah. current will quite often be going one way and you'll go back the next time, but it'll actually be going a different way. So it's it's interesting. I think those sort of things, they're hard to pick up on, but they sort of create those opportunities that can, you know, impoundments are pretty big places and, and fish can be literally anywhere inside them. But if you can understand those sort of little things and, and why when you catch a fish in a certain spot, you know, why is that fish there and why is it feeding there? You know, every now and then you might be just you know, right place at the right time. But um, you, I, I think you've got to sort of ask, ask those questions. You know, why, why am I consistently catching fish on this bank at this particular time? And, um, yeah. you know, there's a reason they're there and that's to eat food. So, And if you work that out, you can apply that to new spots, other spots, you know, and it can just make it, your fishing go from – you know, here to way up there. Mm, absolutely. And um, I think that current is something that this coming season when we can finally get back on the water, it's something that I'm going to be taking a lot more notice of in those dams and, and just having a bit of a check and, you know, what what's the wind doing to start off with? Which way is it going to be pushing that water? Generally when I fish at night, if it's been windy during the day and, and it calms down, then that water will tend to be pushing back to, to equal itself out, creating that current. So... I think there's chances there to have a look and, you know, it's not too hard to actually look at a map and, and go, okay, if I had current pushing along this whole bank, where are going to be the best spots to actually, you know, to go and look at without even being on the water? Yeah. So that's what I was going to say. What Like for people who have never, obviously you're almost half answered it there. What So the current is caused by the wind and then how do you, if you didn't even think about it before you threw a fly in and you're going to take notice of it, how do you actually take notice of it? Do you just go okay, the wind was hammering this way so that while the wind's blowing this way, it's going that way. Well, actually, when it settles, it'll go back the other way or do you just go up to a point and throw the fly in and work out where it's going? That's all. I guess not everyone has a fly one to even do that. So, look, I think um, I've given this a bit of thought, actually. One of, the, one of the simplest ways of doing it, if you want to check on a bank if there actually is any current there, one – if you get a, an empty drink bottle, Coke bottle or something like that and fill it 90% full of water so it's just sitting under the surface almost, you'll, you'll certainly see if, it's, if it starts to move. You know, there's right. all things you can do like that um, just to pick up on it. There are times when you, you can pick up on some lures and stuff, like swim baits that are lightly weighted. You will see those when you take notice of it, but they are actually drifting through the water at the same time. But, um, I mean, when it's really strong, you'll you'll see on points 
where there'll be a calm patch behind the point on one side and not the other. Yeah. So you can sort of pick up on those things. But um, once you spend a bit of time on the water, you'll get to know it a bit. And quite often on those banks, there's only only two ways the current's going to go, and that's left or right. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a matter of working it out that, um, you know, through a, through a bit of sort of uh, thought. But quite often, though, it's not it's not what you think it's going to be. That's the, you know, that's the thing. It's not just because the wind blew that way. You know, the current, once once it's been, a, got a big push from wind and it starts to swirl around, that, that movement will continue from a, a long period of time. It's a big volume of water. You know, that's once it starts moving, it it keeps moving for quite a period of time. Yeah. And then, and then you're saying if you manage to find something like that, um, well and truly spend some time on the point and fish from the downstream side and cast up into the point or around the point because you want to be bringing your lures back through where the fish are facing? Is that the best way to approach a spot? I think so, and that, that's a pretty good point. Where, wherever there is any current, predominantly those fish, if they're, you know, if they're holding in one spot, they'll certainly be facing up current. And to have your lures thrown slightly forward and bring it across and down the current is probably a really natural way of, of doing it. So, and I think look, the other thing I like to do in that scenario, just I guess in, in addition to the current, and for me something that's quite natural, uh, areas like, say, Blowering Dam, for argument's sake, where um, there's a big population of redfin, uh, carp, to a lesser extent trout, um, those those sort of bait fish are, are schooled up quite often. And... It's a natural thing that when those fish are spooked, um, the first thing they want to do is actually go to deep water if they can. And I think there's also, if you think about those currents, the other points to look for in dams is those, you would have seen them up there in Blowering, those big shelf areas. Yep. Um, I mean, to me, I can just picture two or three cod patrolling together along those different uh, big shelf drop-offs and one cod might come across a, a school of redfin and all of a sudden they just shoot down over that edge and there's another couple of fish patrolling those next couple of shelves down. So it makes sense for me to sit out from the bank a lot and cast to the bank and contour your lure down um, over those shelves and kind of create that natural fleeing bait, you know, trying to head to deep water and, and get to some cover. There's so much more you can think about that there's so much more to fishing than just chuck on the lure, fish a bank like this. Like... As an angler, you really have to think and key yourself into a waterway and it can take time but the results, it, you know, there's actually patterns to what you're doing. Yeah, look, absolutely. And look, that's, I guess you go back to uh, what I was saying earlier, you know, if you only fish one style on one type of bank, I think you're going to sort of miss out. So having a flexible approach, if you can have at least two outfits with two different types of lures, Yep. And I would generally try to rotate through those. So if I've got a swim bait on one and a, and a chatter bait on another or a, or a plastic, I'll just go and rotate that. So I might have 10 or 15 minutes and I'll, I'll put that rod down, pick that other one up, and I'll go and fish that. And it'll be fishing it a slightly different way, different style of lure. So I kind of feel like I'm giving myself the best chance through the whole night that if I was fishing one style and that's not the style of lure they wanted for that night, um, then I'm still in with a chance to to, And I think it's all about trying to increase those chances of, A, getting the bite. Um, what you do after you get the bites are probably a, a completely different segment altogether as well. But if you don't get the bite, you know, that's not, doesn't matter what you're throwing and 
and what gear you've got and, and how good your boat is and how good your sounder is. If you don't get the bite in the first instance, then, you know, that, that's half your battle over. Yeah, you're still playing this sort of unknown game until you do get the bite. Um, what with the with the lures? Once you get a fish, do you then stick with that lure for a bit longer? Do you stick with it for an hour and then you get another fish and then you're like, all right, I'm going to use the chatterbait all night? Is that your process or you keep changing? No, look, I, I will. I'll definitely stick with what's working, um, particularly for the next hour or so. Or if I've been pretty um, pretty happy with what's been happening the, the the three or four sessions before that, if I've predominantly got them on a on a chatterbait, I'll definitely move towards using the bait that's been working more than something else. Yeah. But we'll still, you know, every hour or so, I'll still put that down and then pick something else up and and have a bit more of a try. And particularly those nights where you might have gone a long period of time between the last bite. That's where I don't mind sort of really mixing it up and and trying to throw something different. Yeah, and what do you go to if you've got two or three rods? You were mentioning chatterbait, plastic, swim bait. Are they your three or, or a surface as well? Possibly at times, probably not as much as you used to. But are they the are they the go tos? And then anything particular in those in terms of models or weights or styles? Yeah, look, I for me, I think it, if you really want to focus on these bigger cod, and let's let's call them meter plus fish, and um, mm-hmm. I think. For me to, and this is probably what really made the big difference when I come back in 2018 and, and really wanted to chase big fish, A, you've got a fish for them. And for me, that, that means lures around 200 mil up to 300 mil, so big yep. lure. Um, you'll still catch a lot of those mid-size 70s up to 90s fish but you'll certainly give yourself a better chance by throwing those bigger lures. So for me, I'm a, I'm a fan of that, roughly that 250mm size um, chatterbait. Yeah. Um, that, that's for me, is, I guess, my has been my go-to lure. In the earlier days, I wasn't that confident with swim baits, but I spent a fair bit of time this year. Um, I had some sessions where I literally only took two or three swim baits with me. That was my whole arsenal, and I was just determined to, to work out how to use them properly and get a couple of confidence fish and that certainly happened and and that sort of adds another um, string to the bow. Yeah. So, yeah, I think swim baits for me is probably not going to get you as many bites. Generally, for me, will be a lot better than, than chatterbaits. Chatterbaits to me seem to be a bit more of a reactive type um, lure. The fish will hit them, but quite often it seems to be out of aggression and the hookup rate's not as great, and that can be very similar, I think, with plastics as well. Yeah. Um, you'll get nights where they, you know, they definitely just belted them out of aggression, you can tell. And you would have had those nights where, I mean, some nights can be hard. You might be four or five hours into it, and you haven't had a single bite for the night, and all of a sudden you get a bite that's so quick that you don't even strike because you know it's already gone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or you do strike, and as you strike, you feel the lure, and you're like, "Ah, oh, he's gone." I know he's gone. It was just natural reaction to strike. <laughs> That's right. But um, yeah, I think the swim baits. I mean, quite often that um, you'll just get for some reason with the swim baits, you just get a lot of those fish will just they almost get mesmerised by it. You know, they'll just slowly cruise along behind, and it's surprising how many times that fish won't commit to that lure. Whereas a chatterbait. They either hit it or they don't. They rarely mm. follow it for a long period of time. Um, but again, I mean, you don't know what mood those fish are going to be in on a certain night with any kind of certainty. So I think that variety and 
you know, and mixing it up. You know, I um I like to have one cast where I'll hop it off the bottom, as I was saying before. I'll fish the next one up midwater, and I'll fish the next one up quite a bit higher, particularly with swim baits. I might I might literally fish it a meter under the water. Yeah. So are you putting a bit of weight on your swim baits and still fishing them deep as well as up higher? Yeah. Look, I I'm sort of in. I don't tend to fish swim baits on those really steep rocky banks as much mm-hmm. as we would those sort of shallower banks. For me, sort of the ideal uh, swim bait water is probably maybe six metres or somewhere like that out where yep. I'm fishing. And I'll, I'll fish them generally mid-water and higher rather than right down low. Um, but that's kind of, I guess, how I, I tend to fish those. And chatterbaits, I'll certainly let those fish down that bottom third of the water column. But again, it's variety. But um, the other thing I like to do with that variety is, um, and I think to get the bite for me in a dam, probably the single biggest thing is that lure pause. Uh, yeah, mid-three. agree, agree. You know, I sort of started doing it originally, a because I thought my chatterbait was up too high in the water, uh-huh. and I was fishing quite steep banks, so I just stop and pause and. On some of the really steep banks, we were sitting in 15 to 20 metres of water and still not a long cast and we're up against the bank. So we're actually pausing for quite a bit thinking I need to be on the bottom and quite often that bite would come, you know, anywhere from five to ten seconds in the pause, just doing absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, so, look, that that pause is, is critical. And I get to the point now where... I would rarely turn my reel handle more than about three wines without stopping. Yes, yes, I feel the same, exactly the same. How good is it though? It's just, it just happens on the pause and you'll talk to your mate in the dark, oh, what do you hit? Yeah, I paused it, like he smacked it on the pause. It's, it's, and it just got to the point where I just, and you think about it, you think how many, how many casts do you put in in a single six to eight hour session? It's got to be a couple of hundred. Mm. and then multiply that by how many sessions you have in the season. And to give you an idea on, for me, how important that pause is, I would have got less than five bites in the last two years while I've been winding the lure. So you think about how many times you actually, you cast the lure, you wind it all the way back to the boat, and four or five times out of how many tens of thousands of casts that is, you know, all those fish have been on that lure pauses. Yeah. It's something about that, you know, and I guess the pause is not necessarily the lure just stopping. It's it's just a change of angle. It's a change of pace with a swim bait. That last little stop of the, the wind, the lure kicks out to the side, but then it yep. continues to straighten up and then start to angle down, and that's almost exactly what an injured bait fish does. Um, the chatterbait, it's just sort of swimming almost straight through the water, change of angle on a tight line, it just drops on a 45-degree angle. The skirt's still pulsing. Um, the, the tail's still paddling. Same with yeah. the plastic. You know, it's just that that change of action um, is, is just what triggers those bites. Especially if a fish is sitting, and I reckon it would happen a couple of t- like sometimes or more than half of the times, the fish would, could be sitting underneath it um, and they're sort of following below and it pauses and comes like, basically at their head they're like well i'm gonna hit this or you know what i mean that could be also the trigger point is the fact that it's just darted towards them and they're like easy food you know yep yep and a lot of times those fish will they will follow that 
that lure, you'd be surprised how much that happens. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, a, a lot of that fishing's at night and you just don't know. But, you know, and same with trolling. You think how many times must have a lure just come up and had a look, uh, come up and had a look at the lure mm. and just never committed. And quite often that time, you know, you tap over a snag and you throw your rod back to, to let the lure rise up and over the snag and all of a sudden, bang, you're on. You know, but um, that casting at night, that that pause is is probably for me the most the the single biggest thing to get that bite. Doesn't matter where you're fishing in the dam, if you're not pausing, you, you're really going to miss out on getting a lot more bites. Yeah, I agree with you. I've I've had the same experience. M- nearly majority have been on the pause. There is one now that you talk about the change of direction. I had one last winter where I was fishing a snag that we side scanned, and I'd put a second cast at it. And I think the camera died because we were filming. It was in the day, and um, one of the boys were like, "Oh, I'll change the bash." I'm like, "Oh, you don't know how to. I'll I'll do it." And the lure had sort of got to the bottom near the log, sort of swung near it, did a couple of winds. And I probably did about five or six wines um, and I'm like, I'll come and change it. And then I cranked the reel like I was ripping it in, like just started ripping it. And within about five cranks of like burning the reel, I got jammed. So he's he's following it and because I've done that change, if it was a pause, he probably would have hit it too. But because it darted away really quick, he was like, yeah, I want that. You know, yeah. so it's just something changed. If I had a straight retrieve that up, which I would have because the log was below us, there's like if I paused it, it would have just stopped. It wouldn't have swung. So I probably wouldn't have paused it, but I probably wouldn't have caught him. Uh, yeah, it just, um, it's just something about those fish. And I guess, you know, you, you could have done that same retrieve at a different time and he was completely fired up and he would have just went out and belted a lure no matter what. Mm. But those fish that are in that stage where I'm, uh, yeah, no, maybe um, that little that little trigger is um, that just what gets what gets the bites. Mm. You've only got to see or two. You know, you would have seen a few pictures of. Um, I think Adam Townsend had one recently where you know he's got a, a bigger cod and it's come up and scoffed a smaller fish. Yeah, that you know that sort of crazy stuff. Um, it happened to me a few times. I've never been lucky enough to catch the, the fish that ate the smaller fish, but um, that's something that quite often happens up in that New England Gorge country. And yeah. you think about that, those fish, probably the best one I reckon I've ever had up there. I, I was fishing a, a tiny um, Gorge country stream. It was drought time, not even flowing, crystal clear. You could see anywhere in this small pool where a fish could hide. And there was one bottle brush, and I'd fired a cast in there. I thought, that'll be the only spot in this pool that there'll be a fish. Fired yep. the cast in, was using a spinnerbait, hooked up instantly to a fish that was probably the best part of, I don't know, 60, 65 centimetres, and watched this brute of a fish just fly behind it. So they were sitting and living under the same patch, fine as you like. And as the smaller fish got over towards me, it basically ran out of room where it could go, and this big fish just started shouldering it. As soon as that small fish turned, uh, it just woofed it down in front of me. A few big head shakes. It got it got that fish right down. And so only, the only thing showing out of its mouth was the tail wrist. Just turned and swam back off. And that sort of scenario out there probably had that happen, you know, half a dozen times. I guess while I've been fishing up there, you think those fish were living quite happily together under the same little piece of structure in a, in a small pool. And yet, as soon as that other fish reacted with a bit of, um, like it was Distress. injured, yep. that big fish just charged up 
you know, and just it's probably one of the most exciting sights I reckon I've ever seen fishing. But just goes to show you what, you know, what really switches those big fish on. Uh, he he would have been he might have been quite happy just sitting there, but sometimes when they get that opportunity or that that opportunity presents, they just can't help themselves. Yeah, it's definitely a distress thing, and you see it all the time. Like even people trying to land trout in blaring, I've heard of big cod come right to the top. So that the whole distress that a fish releases must be that enticing, and that like the fish just know that's food that they'll they'll do anything to hit it but if that fish just cruised past casually like normal they would have just let it go because it's not an easy feed and i think too when when those fish do fire up like that particularly if they're um we're talking before about you, you get another bite as soon as you got it you know that first bite <clears throat> i think that activity of actually a big fish getting caught will certainly try and fire those other fish up and it's uh it's that time that obviously hard when you you've put a big fish in the boat, you obviously want to sit there and admire it. Sit back and celebrate <laughs> once <laughs> you, you catch you it. Do, certainly the opportunities there, if you've, if you've particularly if you've missed a fish, um, you know, that's why I think it's so important to get that lure back in the water as quick as you can and fish that area pretty hard because um, those other fish firing up and, and even if they miss your lure, you know, that just creates excitement in the water and, and quite often that's the trigger you need to get that next big fish. Yeah, 100%. And I just had a thought back to when you were talking about um, the fact that they would follow. Like, even though it's dark, we don't know, but they would definitely follow. We, made of mine, <clears throat> had one of those troll cams um, and we were just trolling for yellers. I think it was this time last year in March. And he had, for an hour of trolling with a spinnerbait, because you can't use a hard body because it shakes the camera, but for an hour of trolling, because blaring so clear, mm-hmm. trolled his spinnerbait. I got two yellers on a hard body, but he had, no joke, about 15 carp follow the spinnerbait and then cruise off and he had a big couple of big yellers come right up and follow it and follow it and follow it and follow it and and just just watch it for ages and then eventually disappear so you just can't imagine how many follows you get that that sort of stuff just gives you a great insight into into what's happening there and yeah i think you've you've almost got to anticipate that every cast is a potential to have a fish following. So to do those little variations that, that might trigger that bite, um, again, I think it's just one of those one percenters that if you're consistently doing those things, it, it could be the difference between that one bite for the night and, and maybe a couple of follows that you didn't know about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what a, one other question I wanted to ask you back, I think mean, it was half half the podcast ago, but you know how you were talking about fishing your steeper banks, your, your, your sort of in-between banks and then the flat ones. Do you have a preference to what kind of bank or there's you got no prejudice over what bank over the other? They all equally fish well and you just go off the fact that what's happening based on what you did last trip? Yeah, sometimes it'll depend. If I'm going to fish a really steep bank, predominantly that's going to be catabates for me um although at certain times of the moon cycle um particularly when it's really dark i don't mind sitting up tight against those steep banks and and fishing up quite a bit higher um in the water column but um no i don't have a preference there's some areas that i've never been i guess a great fan of those really flat shallow bays Mm -hmm. um i'm i'm more like the target i don't mind flat banks but banks that are a bit more exposed you know to the elements and wind rather than tucked up in the, the back of a, a very shallow bay um, yeah i mean plenty of people catch fish in there but it just hasn't seemed to be that successful for me 
Yep. I guess my ideal bank, I think I mentioned before, if I'm sitting in, in about eight metres of water and I can long cast to the bank, um, that's probably my preference because I can fish that bank several different ways. I can. It's still not that deep that I can't fish it with a swim bait effectively. And being a long cast... It, it, you feel like you spend a lot more time with your lure in the water rather than short casting a very steep uh, bank. Although, you know, at times those steep banks are, are pretty productive areas. So no no real area. Preference. Yeah. Do you, what about the structure on the bank? Do you like the variation? You know how you're talking about the shelves that give you sort of the cotton ambush opportunity or patches of rock or, or variation or you don't like – is there any particular kind of structure on those banks that you kind of catches your eye when you when you're in the dam or on the dam? Yeah, look, there's a there's a few banks I guess that do. There's places like Blairing. There's certainly not as much structure in there, and and that can be hard to get your head around. I think you've got to think structure in a different way than than a physical snag. Mm-hmm. So it is those those rockier edges, those um those contoured shelvy drop offs. Um, points, you know, areas where those exposed banks where the wind blows up and you get a lot of that dirty water can be just as, as good a structure. Um, and I guess that's thinking about that in a different way, but it's more creating cover that a fishes on those bright moonlit nights. Uh, you know, it's still quite bright in a, a clear water dam like blaring and, and hunting out those areas that a fish is probably more likely to, to be comfortable in feeding. So it's kind of thinking about structure, I guess, in a in a different way than than a, a heavily timbered area like Mulwala or somewhere like that, where fish are going to be more structure orientated in a place like that. Mm-hmm. Other places like Blaring and uh, Burrinjuk, Copeton, you know, Wyangla, a lot more standing timber in those sort of areas, and and a bit more in the way of laydowns, and that can create whole different you know fishing opportunities as well, fishing those type of structures. But for me, I'm not. I just seen those fish just roam around so much and not be that structure orientated that it doesn't really worry me. I'm I'm more I'm looking for areas of concentration of bait, not necessarily trying to find fish on the sounder, like cod on the sounder. Yeah. But definitely that bait that I mean that's that's one of the reasons they're gonna be there. So if you're not seeing hardly any bait on the sounder on a particular bank, um I don't tend to spend too much time, you know, on that on that bank and another thing i've seen late i don't know if it was uh what a wind it was the end of sort of spring last year i saw you had a few photos of fish you were starting to catch in the day um and mm. i know that's something you've dabbled in a little bit now and it's obviously more difficult because you got more opportunity in the night but is there a difference between your technique come daylight do you do the same thing but just fish deeper how do you approach trying to catch a fish in full sun yeah, I two two ways. What one is, um, well, I guess the first thing with fishing in the daylight in a very clear water dam is that those fish are just very spooky. Um, when you're walking the bank and spotting fish, I mean, I've I've cast to those fish that I can see, and you can see what they do once they're already up in that um, full sunlight area. I've I've cast um, very uh, lightly weighted swim baits. Well in front of those fish, I've I've moved it in front of their um, their path, and what those fish will tend to do is they do about a three meter wide circle, 
and we'll just swim around your boat. They won't even they don't get spooked, but they'll move around it. So they're pretty um, they're pretty hard to catch when they're up in that area. I, I prefer to start fishing a bit deeper, getting down to that point where that sunlight stops to or starts to fade away, gives them yep. a bit current cover. Um, tend to find that those fish are happy to move out of the darker water and come up and eat. But once they're already up in that really bright layer of water, they're going to be very difficult to catch. So I do tend to fish a lot deeper. Yep. I'll quite often sit in similar water, so 8, 10 metres of water. And instead of casting into the bank, I'll simply long cast out the, into 20, 25 metres of water. And I'll yeah. quite often fish my lure back up that way. Um, I think, and, and I guess this is a whole other subject as well but the peak bite times that often coincide with uh, that daily moon cycle so you moon up moon down moon during the day during the day that's probably that is one time that i will focus my area if i'm going to fish during the day it'll be an hour either side of those peak moon phases Mm, that's that's handy to know and i've I've heard that quite a few times as well the the moon phase for me in terms of bites at night Sometimes it winds up, sometimes it doesn't. But during the day, it's 95% chance during the day if you catch a fish or get a bite during the day in those really clear water dams, it, it will all go into those peak moon phases during the day. That's probably the biggest thing there, um, without a doubt. Yeah, cool. That's handy to know because I've seen you started to get a few fish in the day and I myself and you know that the dark is just a killer um but I just yeah I just wanted to see and for other people going out what the approach was for daytime and and fishing deep is critical but it's good to know um and I've heard it before and myself I've experienced it with that moon rising and setting during the day so something that you can sort of look out for mate but we we've had a unreal episode I could talk to you till the sun goes down it's only morning it's only like 11 o'clock um I still do want to ask you though um what is your most memorable catch in the last two years fishing blaring is there one fish in particular is it your biggest what's your most memorable experience maybe it's one of those fish that busted you off um can you tell us an experience of either your biggest one you've caught what what is first of all what is your biggest and is it your most memorable my biggest is it's right up there. It's pretty hard to narrow it down, I guess, to one particular fish. But the, my PB fish, um, my my once in a lifetime dream fish is to crack that one thirty mark. Yeah. And my PB fish was two mils short of that. <laughs> so what was it? Hundred like one hundred twenty nine centimeters and a bit more. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, look, that was probably. I think looking back, that's that's probably one of the most memorable fish without a doubt. I mean, every, everyone remembers their PB fish, but mm. um, for me, that that night was even more rewarding because I'd uh, I'd purchased a heap of wet weather gear. One, one thing about the last two years, I, I don't pay too much attention before I go fishing to to what the weather's going to do, regardless of what it does. I just go and fish. If I can fish, I'll, I'll be there and I'll fish, and I'll just put up with whatever conditions happened to be there on the night. But that particular night, it just felt right. It was one of those nights where um, we had drizzle rain the whole night. Mm. It went from a spit to a, a heavy rain, but it was it was dead still um, and calm. And it just felt like every cast, you're in the zone, you knew you were going to get caught. And about three and a half, four hours into the session, I was starting to lose um, 
my excitement of being there and thinking how good it should be. And that fish cracked me on, I think, the first pause. And yeah. it hit like I don't think I've ever had a fish hit before. And then it swam towards the boat flat out and I had to whine like mad just to keep any kind of pressure on the rod. And I thought, oh, maybe it's not as big as I thought. Yeah. Um, as it went past the boat, it uh, it just loaded that rod up and I knew instantly I was in a bit of trouble and I ended up using the electric and getting out to, to really deep water. I just never had a fish pull so much line on that type of um, gear before. Yeah. I think it was about oh, 10 or 15 minutes into the fight, I hadn't even seen the fish. Wow. Yeah, it was just a next-level um, type of fight and and all the all the things that run through your head at that stage, like the first uh, that first run, I mean, my my, my hands were shaking. I was just thinking, "Wow, this is this is another level of fish." And then all kinds of things started going through my mind. I, yes, <laughs> well, I haven't seen this fish. <laughs> Have I foul hooked it? Where's it hooked? And yeah, you end up sort of backing right off and, and trying to take it a bit easier. Just on that, you know, is it swallowed the lure? Is it just held in by a, you know, by a piece of skin on the outside of the mouth? But um, yeah, that was certainly one of those fish where I was in no hurry to go back and start casting again. I was quite content to crack a beer and sit down and enjoy uh, enjoy the moment. I think, um, you know, catching a fish like that, uh, I would have loved to have catch, caught it with somebody else with me, but I think even the fact that I caught it solo as well was just one of those moments. But um, that's certainly up there. And look, getting a, the other probably one that I think memory is right up there was, was getting a a metre 10 on the fly. I think that was um, that was certainly up there. And, again, a solo trip and a similar fight. I hadn't even seen that fish for oh, 10 or 15 minutes and it took me to the into the backing on about three occasions and I was, I'd moved out to about 30 metres of water and my fly line was vertical and I had no fly line left on the rod. What? Oh. <laughs> so um, I ended up giving a mate a call uh, and, and Bryce, I knew he was fishing another end of the dam, and he scooted across and jumped in the boat. And uh, I didn't even have a landing net with me, so um, <laughs> he brought some back up with me. And um, we ended up, and again, that was probably a 20, 25 minute fight for that fish. That's um, crazy. Yeah. So, no, certainly a couple of memorable ones, but look, they're, I mean, any fish, once they start getting over that meter marker, are memorable, but. I've been lucky enough to, um, yeah, to have a few experiences like that in the last couple of years. So um, hopefully a few more to come. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Have you have you had any that you reckon you've hooked that have been bigger? Do you reckon some of those ones you've either dropped or that have managed to escape have been yeah, up I, there? I've I've definitely had a um, had a chance at a one thirty fish. I think on on at least two occasions, uh, it'll, maybe more. But it's hard to tell with some fish. But there's some fish you just know that mm. you've just missed something very special. And um, um, there was one in Burrenjuk earlier this year and um good mate of mine, Tim, keeps reminding me of the night that he put me onto a 150 and I wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was certainly a next little fish. It was one of those fish that um, I think it was second cast of the morning. It was about minus five for memory. Um, probably the coldest night I've ever fished. And, yeah, second cast of the morning, I followed a swim bait out and I did three wines and a pause and I just felt the inhale just, 
it just shot up that line and I let back into that fish and he didn't move a muscle and then just took off and yeah, unfortunately it's one of those little lessons you learn about not checking your your gear and I hadn't uh, hadn't done my proper uh, proper checks on the you know spent a whole uh, whole day of using my um using my gear around timber and not checking so that was a lesson learnt there but um I do keep getting reminded of that little uh, that little. <laughs> <laughs> you poor bloke if, if, if losing the fish isn't a big enough reminder on its own no nah, look there, there was certainly no uh there was no ribbings at the time both those blokes in the boat knew exactly the the type of fish that i just lost and credit to them they they didn't say too much they kind of knew how i felt but um certainly since then they've let me know about it but um, yeah it's all right once a few days passes and look i do i think you've got to learn a few lessons the hard way unfortunately but um I just wish it wasn't on that fish, but uh, mm. <laughs> no, losing fish, I guess, that's just part of it. You're going to miss bites. You're going to lose fish, but, you know, having that having that good gear, checking that gear, um, not taking anything to chance, uh, they're all those little one percenters that at the end of the day, once you do come across that fish, hopefully everything sticks together and, you know, you end up putting that fish of a lifetime in the boat. So, but yeah, look, for me, that, that 130 fish, that'll be a, that that's my um, that's my focus on what I want to catch. Um, yeah. Might take a few years, might take me longer, but um, you know, one day we'll cross paths, and you know, it'll be a um, I'll be one very contented angler. Oh yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. Well, I've been lucky enough to um, experience. I was with Talis the night he got that 136, and mm. wow, was that was that a big fish? Like, yeah, it, it, they're mm-hmm. a very special fish, and I know they're even bigger out there, but. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be remembering that night for a long time because, you know, that's a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience seeing a fish of that size. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, speaking of Talos, I think the first year I come back and fished, I don't know if it was the first, maybe second time I actually fished with him. Um, that was one of those nights too where, I mean, the, the shoe was on the other foot. He uh, he missed a fish that I'd never seen a fish do what, what this fish did to him and, we were casting in this sort of shallow bay and I knew about three seconds before he got hit that he was about to get hit. I watched this fish come straight through the sounder. You could see it. It was just a oh, a big line, yellow line on my sounder with, with red through the centre line mm. and a straight line about mid-water. And I looked at the sounder and went, wow, that's big. I turned around to Talos to say, mate, get ready. And he's just like, oh, yep, I'm on. And, mate, that fish just loaded that rod up. It spun my boat about 180 degrees around and then he ended up just dropping it. Yeah, was that on the hard body? Was that on that um, mud eye, the big furry thing? Nah, no, nah. I think from memory that was on a – it might have been a plastic with a blade just on the front. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He um, did tell me about the fish that spun the boat around. Yeah, that was that, was that one. And um, – I mean, you just, I know how that moment feels and it's just not, it's not a good feeling for anyone. I think it's even worse when you're in the boat with somebody else that that happens to them because, I mean, you just, you don't know what to say. Anything you say is not right. <laughs> nah, exactly. Oh, it's, it's, it's like cringeworthy. You're like, oh, mate, I feel for you, but like, why did you drop it? <laughs> yeah. And look, do you find... Do you find with hook set that that's uh, an important part of of sticking to those sort of fish? Yeah. You know, 
You've been fishing there a few times where you'll see somebody else hook up, or, or it might have even happened to you where you've had the fish on for four or five seconds, and then all of a sudden it just it's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It, it it happens, and I think it's the big the the big level fish. Like, I think it's once they get to that size that those hooks, in comparison to their mouth, are so small. And their mouths are so tough, like they're that bony, and it's 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 a killer. And we there was one season there, we're going back four or five years now, where we were starting to use plastics, and we just didn't have the right hook design in them. And people who follow us will know. And we dropped thirteen big fish in about a month in a row. So we did not land a fish for thirteen fish, and one of them, one of them was an. He had to be 130. I've never felt anything like it. Um, and he just fell off. I hooked him and I thought he was a snag for about six or eight seconds. Yep. And I was trying to flick the lure off a snag, what I thought was a snag in shallow water before it started swimming. And it started moving to you the know right. And I'm like, holy moly. Anyway, it just fell out with these hooks. But ever since we changed the way we rig our plastics, we get better hook sets. But yeah, we, we still you still miss them and you just go, what the hell did I do wrong? Like mm-hmm. he just jammed it. I just jammed him. And I usually find they fall off pretty quick, but within about three or four seconds, um, if not straight away. Yeah, I, I tend to find, you, get, you know, you get those fish where, and I think this is a part of empowerment fishing because those fish, aren't structure oriented they don't they don't have a they haven't scooted out from a snag grab your lure and they're going to turn and go back exactly it's you've got to do all the work because they so, swim at you they swim at you so you hook them and they go oh let's get to deep water and you've got to crank like yeah yep. there's no there's no pressure for the fish like you talked about that big one you hooked you've got to set the hook as hard as you can because as soon as they feel that they're going to come at you if you're on the bank if you were bank walking for them i reckon you'd have no trouble um i reckon they'd turn and you'd load into them but yeah setting the hook is is hard and i for anyone who gets a hit on a big damn cod i would just say just hit them as hard as you can and wind so yeah it's tough i think that's probably the, the most important part about the whole yeah, you will get some. I think for me, the worst ones, I had a run in 2018 and the start of 2019 where I almost lost every one of those fish. You know those big ones that hit you and they actually do all the work. They inhale, they load up, the rod loads up. They even pull string and you think, oh, yep, I'm on. And then as soon as they slow or turn, bang, you you. You've dropped them. So do you do you, do you, do you strike those fish, or you go, nah, I'm on, I've got him, cool, like, or do you lean into them, or no, what do you? Yeah, look, I, I was losing almost all of those fish that did that, and it was it was really frustrating me because I thought I thought I'd done all the you know the right things, but what I wasn't doing was setting that hard. And if anyone's seen me in a boat now, I mean, when I strike a fish like that, I look out, don't get in the way. Because- <laughs> Oh, man, you sound like me. Oh, geez, I cop it from everyone. Yeah, and if I don't think I've put that hook in enough on the first strike, I'll hit it two or three more times where I really uh, – and I'll fish a heavy drag as well. So I don't, I don't want – when I lean back into that fish, I don't want that line just to automatically come off the spool. I want that rod to, rod to fully load and pull all that pressure straight back into that hook point because and when you start fishing lures that are – 200 mil plus and they've got 102030 size hooks on them. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a big hook to try and get past that barb 
and I mean, I used to be worried about pulling the hooks out by doing it, but I've found it's actually the complete opposite. Um, yes. You almost never pull a hook by jamming it in there, and if you do, you're never going to land that fish anyway. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, and I've seen it, you know, with, with guys that have gone fishing with that maybe ours experience. You know, you, when they hit and that rod loads up, the amount of times that they've dropped a fish, and it's – and, and I still do it myself now. Like I, I might take a couple of seconds to to fully react, especially with the ones that are that have loaded the rod up for me. I'm like, oh, strike, and really, you know, I have to think about setting that hook. It's not something that becomes supernatural when those fish do all the work for you. Different when they, you know, they hit and you know you've got to actually strike, and then um, you know, keep whining like mad just to keep a bit of pressure on, let alone try and bury a hook in. So mm. I think that's probably, uh, you know, another one of those key little things where um, nothing worse than fishing for several sessions just to get one bite and then mm. go and drop it, you yeah. know. Once you've had it on particularly, you know, um, but I think that hook set's just a – it's Pretty just cool. – you've got to get into your system of actually knowing that. And even if you're slow to react – um, to really set that hook, it's just something you've got to really swing back with everything you've got. Uh, once it's in there, it definitely won't come out. No, that's right. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, you do have to get it in, and it's yeah, it's very important, like you said, because and and yeah, don't be scared of pulling a hook. And if you do happen to pull a hook, you probably won't even know it. But if you consistently just do it that way, you're going to be better off than being a real light striker because you'll miss a lot more in the long run. Oh, you will. You definitely won't put as many fish in the boat without striking, that's for sure. Yeah. That was good. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, um, yeah, something that's really important and not many people think about because they think about just getting the fish, but that, that strike is, is so important. Mate, I really appreciate um, this whole chat and I'll, if you're keen, I'm definitely keen to get you back on again for another episode, but I feel like I just got my fishing fix um, in <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> Mate, I'm the same. It's been uh, it's been quite a few weeks now since I've had a fish, and um, it's kind of fired me back up now. I'll be uh, straight back out in the shed and sorting a bit of gear out and getting a bit more ready for when we can get back out there. Yeah, the day it'll be it'll be the new cod opening, <laughs> the day that we're allowed to fish. <coughs> Certainly will be. Yeah, cool, mate. I appreciate it. Um, thanks heaps for the chat. Thanks heaps for going right in depth on all of that stuff that was really really cool chat um and it's kind of looking at fishing from a different angle but a super important angle because if you can think like that you know you're just going to be so much more ahead of the game yeah no, it's all about uh, getting out there and uh getting amongst it and and hopefully uh hopefully getting that next fish of a lifetime yeah mate clint i appreciate it mate thanks heaps uh, for for doing this and um yeah, until the next trip, but yeah, I appreciate it. No problem, mate. Thanks, heaps. Cheers, Clint. There you have it, guys. I have no words. I told you it was going to be a good episode. How insane was that? I just, I just finished talking to Clint and I'm that pumped to go to the dam. It's ridiculous because it's been closed for so long. I haven't fished it for over four months. 
uh, before the fires at Blaring and I'm not far from Blaring. I just want to get up there. I'm itching to get up there so bad and I imagine if you're a keen angler, you've just finished this episode, you're listening to me now, I bet you feel the exact same way to get up to your local impoundment and start casting for these big fish, especially when we're getting much closer to winter. It was such an inspiring chat, just talking about those big fish. It just makes me want to get up there and start rolling big plastics through the water column and just to get jammed by another big cod. The adrenaline rush from a big fish is just insane. I love fishing on a river, lots of casts, exciting fishing, getting some good fish, but the memorable days um, of the memorable moments come from those big impoundment fish and the adrenaline and the excitement that pumps through your body when you hook and net one of those giants is just something of a next level and I'm super keen to get back up there and do it. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you did, please do me a favor, like it uh, on the podcast app, take a screenshot, a screenshot and if you have a social media account, post it on your wall, post it on your feed, post it in your story, tag us and let us know what you think. Let the world know what you think of these podcasts. We want to keep creating them for you guys but we need your support. So, keep downloading and share it with your mates and I would really appreciate it if you guys let everyone know what you thought of this episode. And I tell you what, if you didn't enjoy it, there's something wrong because that episode was insane. Now, I do want to apologize for the slightly poor quality at Clint's and that was just because I had him interviewed on on a phone because obviously we are all remote um, and it's the only way I could tee him up but it was still easily clear enough to hear and I hope it was enjoyable to listen to but yeah, I want to thank you guys for tuning in and just before we finish up, once again, I do want to mention uh, our social fishing membership has now gone live. It is where we're going to be creating a whole stack of content. So, we've got all sorts of different content in there and the main thing is the social fishing maps. Inside the social fishing maps, we are driving, we are visiting all the major lakes and then we'll move on to rivers and we're documenting all the access points, boat ramps, key fishing spots, camping areas, all the different things that you need to know when you first visit a new lake. When it comes to Blaring Dam, as we we referenced in this episode, we talk about all the different access points, all the best camp spots, all the best spots to fish off the bank depending on the height and even the key banks to cast. So, we've put in there all the different key banks that we like to fish, areas that you can focus on when you visit the lake, plus plenty of tips and videos on all different waterways and lakes. We have a stack of different lakes. We've got Eildon, Nagambi, Blaring. We've got Mawala coming up. We've got Windermere coming up, Burrenjuk, and then we're going to keep growing so we have a full library of content. There's also the social fishing community where you can share and talk with members and there's so much more content. So, that's inside the social fishing membership, guys. You can check out more about that at socialfishing.com.au. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I want to thank Clint once again for the incredible knowledge he shared um, and the whole conversation and where it went. It was just exciting to hear a totally different aspect of fishing and you guys, it's just something to think about. Think outside the box. Think about the situation. Think about the fish themselves and how they behave. It's not always about just getting up there, 
putting a lure in the water and just fishing. What I highly recommend is, like Clint said, there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff he talked about there. Is you spent time during the day looking around, do a bit of research, head up there at lunchtime on a nice bright sunny day before your night session, and just do a bit of exploring. It will help you later on through the night, especially when it comes to finding a few good banks to fish. Anyway, guys, that is it for this week's episode. I really appreciate you tuning in. Episode 34 with Clint Hansel was an absolute cracker and if you enjoyed it, make sure you share it with your mates. Thank you for tuning in to the Social Fishing Podcast.